When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's going on, everybody? Hope you are having a wonderful week so far. It's podcast time, and I'm really excited about this week. Um, but for, before we kind of get into it, I've just got a new record that's come out called Searching with Shermanology. It's out now on my label. All we have is now. Um, go listen to it. Go stream. Go spot on Spotify, Apple Music, Beatport, all the good stuff. Um, go check that out. But first, before you check that out, it's podcast time. And this week is with the one and only Jerry Beltram. If you don't know who Joey is, Joey is probably one of the leading artists in techno from the early 80s, 90s, up until today. Um, he's had some absolute iconic records over the years. Um, Energy Flash, Mentasm, Subsonic Trance, Psycho Bass, The Melody, like... <laughs> unbelievable records groove tack um that have just kind of been the reason why techno is techno um i recently came across him playing one of my records so i reached out to him and we've just kind of kept in touch since and then i asked him to, I, met, I actually met him at cross festival in person very briefly um he was on the way to stage and i'd just come off um, and I asked him to come on the podcast and he said yes, which was absolutely amazing because he's one of my idols, really. Um, so I'm going to stop rambling on and get onto this conversation. So without further ado, Jerry Beltram. Jerry Beltram, what an honor. How are you, man? Hey. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, it's an honor. Thank you uh, for inviting me on. Oh, man, thank you. It's, um, it's, it's kind of mad, this. This is like, I've listen to your music from literally day one um of being into house house and techno um you must get that a lot right um sometimes uh, <laughs> i've been around a long long time so <laughs> somebody's heard something i guess at some point yeah definitely definitely where are you based at the moment uh i'm back in new york city nice man are you are you actually in manhattan no nah, i'm in brooklyn nice whereabouts uh, right on the Bushwick Ridgewood border. Oh, cool, man! I love, I love uh, New York so much. It's like literally my favorite. I was there like uh, two weekends ago, just hanging out yeah. with friends. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Have you been there your whole life? Uh, yeah, yeah. I lived in in, in Queens when I was younger, up until I was you know uh, eighteen or nineteen. Yeah, um, that's where I'm from. Last stop on the M train. Nice. How was it? How was it growing up? So what? How, what? When were you growing up in in New York? Was it in the eighties or? Yeah, yeah. I was a teenager in the eighties. How was that? It was great. It was the best time to be a teenager, and uh, from my point of view, uh, and also uh, the, the best location uh, yeah. where I was part of a lot of things. Uh, I got to witness a lot of things in the eighties. You know. Mm. Um, 
you know, spent a lot of time writing like, you know, graffiti where I lived. It was, uh, prime, <laughs> you know, um, graffiti location right, right there on the M train, uh, was, was the best. Were you a graffiti artist? Yeah. Yeah. When I was young. You any good? I was pretty good. Yeah. I got good. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's you, fun. Do you still see any of your stuff from years ago? Just like randomly. On the internet, there's a lot of it. Really? Nobody knows because uh, I don't really, you know, put that out there as yeah. far as me. Yeah, yeah. But I'm always surprised that so much stuff of mine pops up. That's amazing. Do you still do it? No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, I'm retired from actively. I mean, if I had the opportunity, I would do like a legal spot, but I'm not out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I did a lot in the 80s, enough to satisfy that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that urge. From like 89 onwards it was about music and not about that but in you know my high school years and stuff like that was uh, a lot of it was about graffiti I was really passionate about that how did the transition go from graffiti because obviously graffiti was more like hip-hop vibes I guess am I am I right in saying I don't think so no. uh, I mean that's like the perception mm. I think most people have. Especially in the in the eighties, yeah. it kind of was a good fit. But graffiti in the in the early seventies that was around on the trains and stuff, and uh, you know, I don't think you know, you know, hip hop wasn't around yet. Really, it, it predated, you know, mm. graffiti predated. I think all, all you know, hip hop started you know seventy three, seventy four, I guess, whatever. And graffiti on the trains was around before that. Yeah, you know, I know a lot of. Uh, uh, big time seventies graffiti writers were into like Black Sabbath and mm. you know Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and they would put that up on the trains on the, in their pieces. Wow! And these were some of the, you know the major guys. Even like Scene did a Black Sabbath whole car, you know, and Hand of Doom, which is uh, a uh, a Black Sabbath song. Okay. Uh, uh, so I mean, he, he's the most famous graffiti writer. You know, if there is a household name graffiti writer, everybody knows it's Scene. Mm. I haven't, I haven't heard of him. I'll have to check his stuff. You ever heard of Scene? No. Scene, the old artist. What's it? Scene what? Scene, S-E-E-N. Google search him. He's the, he's, he's the, the guy in the graffiti world. Scene. Global. Ah, uh, here we go. I've got him up now. Scene. Type in the Hand of Doom whole car. I mean, even did a Black Sabbath whole car. If you type in Black Sabbath, I'm sure it'll come up. The crazy thing is Black Sabbath. Um, I, okay, yeah, yeah, I see. Damn. Yeah. I think, uh, I'm going from memory, but I think it's like in greens and stuff. I mean, that's the hand of doom. I think it has the green background with the bats. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Something like that. I think he has a, a hand with a knife or something. <laughs> it's crazy the cause that that guy did. He was amazing. Was this it? Can you see that? Nah, I can't really see it. Yeah, I don't know if that's it. This looks like it's in... I don't think it is. No, this looks like it's in Birmingham. No, no, this is a train. These are trains that ran on the, on the number six line. Okay, let me Google this. Anybody that's listening, go Google it. I've been seeing graffiti Black Sabbath. Graffiti. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got this on the train. Yeah, there's a hand of doom, I think, underneath it, right? Yeah, there is, yeah. Yeah. Damn. That's crazy. I used to be managed by Ozzy Osbourne's son. 
Oh yeah, uh, yeah, Louis. Um, right. Back in the day, uh, that was a trip. Um, so yeah, how did it go from graffiti to writing techno? For me, yeah. I don't know. I mean, graffiti kind of—I was into that first, you know, yeah. when I was a kid. Even before I was actively doing it, I took an interest in it when I was like eleven or twelve years old in school because a lot of people would write on their desks and in school in the hallways, you know, early eighties. Mm. So, you know, the idea appealed to me. And then one day I was riding my bicycle past the train station and I saw a whole car just pull in, uh, with graffiti, like, like the hand of doom kind of thing, you yeah. know, the whole car with the windows. And I saw it and I saw that, you know, that same concept of just getting your name in places, but instead of on the desk in school where two people could see this is something that was moving and it just elevated that to me. Yeah. I was like, right, this is the point of graffiti is to fuck your desk and fucking the whole way in school. <laughs> A whole fucking train going by through the neighborhoods, you know? Yeah. And then, so I got into that. I was probably, when I was like 14, mm. uh, I saw the folks on the trains and I took it serious. Okay. And so then I had to leave my neighborhood and kind of venture out to the trains. I met other graffiti writers from other neighborhoods nearby. And I got exposed to the, they were doing the, the like, they would do like uh, the street kind of DJ parties. And I was just gravitated towards the DJ a little bit when I would yeah. go to these things. And that was my first exposure to like seeing it, like, you know, before my eyes. Yeah. DJing. So the graffiti kind of exposed me to, to the DJing world. Then I got interested in that. So, you know, I had to get myself some turntables and, mm. you know, I was already buying some records, you know, but then I started really buying a lot of records and going to Vinyl Mania was like probably the first store I would like go to. Because before that, I would just go to like various places, but they didn't have a lot. They just had some current yeah. things. But then I, I, when I went to Vinyl Mania, it was just like a whole store dedicated to club music instead mm. of just going to a little dance music section and going through that mm. amongst other genres of, you know, rock and pop music and whatever else they had. Vinyl Mania was a whole store for DJing. Where, where was it? Music. Where was Vinyl Mania? On Carmine Street. In the city? Yeah, in Manhattan. Uh, I guess that's the East Village there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I went there, uh, and I was lucky I found it. Somebody just, like, told me vaguely where it was. So I just, like, had to explore and discover it and find it. And I was like, oh, this is the place. And uh, it was, yeah, it was amazing. And that kind of fueled everything, because then I could go home with armfuls of records. Right back then, records were two ninety nine. Oh, wow. Was yeah. that, was that ex- it was a lot then, was, but it was still somehow affordable. I was going to say, is that was that expensive then? And thinking back, it was it probably, probably expensive, was. but yeah. you know, you can still come home with 10, 20 records, new records. Were they were they exports or like imports? Those were all domestic, uh, you know, US records. Yeah. You know, uh, the imports, I think at that time, were like $6. Yeah. Amazing. Now that was expensive. You yeah. had to it had to be a really good one for me to <laughs> six dollars for one record back then when I was fourteen. Yeah, that's a, how were you earning money? This is why I want. Uh, Mom, I need money for records. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was fourteen, <laughs> but I didn't have a job when I was fourteen. I delivered newspapers, and then probably shortly after that, I don't even know how old I was, but also young, I uh, worked at a grocery store. Okay, like after school for yeah. like two hours. <laughs> It's mad, isn't it? Inflation. But then I was also writing graffiti, so, you know. 
spending, you know, a, spending, a, spending a lot of money on paint. Well, I try not to spend too much money on paint. You know, there was other ways to get paint. You know, <laughs> well, well, I require yeah. a big heavy coat, and uh, even <laughs> in the summertime, somehow trying not to look suspicious. <laughs> I love yeah. that. I love that. You don't really see it as much now in New York, do you? The whole graffiti kind of vibe is, is they cleared it up quite a lot. Which yeah, it's on the streets a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think the streets right now are more full of graffiti than I think I've ever seen them, even in the eighties. Brooklyn you know, the 80s focused on trains, especially in Williamsburg. You've got some amazing graffiti down there. Um, There's a lot. Yeah, I was just in uh, I was just in Miami last weekend, um, and they're setting up for for Art Basel and around Wynwood area there's some amazing graffiti yeah they got a, a museum down there too yeah like yeah. the graffiti museum is located there yeah it's mad it's mad how it's kind of become how it used to be more like fuck the system and now it's like kind of respected as an art I mean Europe too I was surprised you know I lived in Berlin for like 10 years mm. and uh, I was surprised to see how much uh, graffiti it was big even on on trains there. Yeah, it was just crazy where it where it where it went. Mm. Did you see this? Did you see the one in uh, London? Uh, I think it was maybe last year during the pandemic. Um, the the one that Banksy did on the London on the London Underground. No, he did one on the London Underground, and then some worker just like cleared it all off and didn't realize it was a Banksy. All right. Yeah, it was hilarious. The amount of press as well. It just yeah, his stuff is uh, considered like you know, don't touch it because it's probably valuable. Uh, let's figure this out. How to <laughs> let's how we get this to the gallery and make some money. Literally, literally, yeah. Because he's he's from he's from like local. My he's from Bristol, which is like my local city in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's a bunch of like there's a bunch of really good graffiti artists around here. Um, but he, he's got a lot of artwork around the city still. Right. Yeah, I mean, I've kind of fallen off as far as uh, my knowledge of current graffiti happenings yeah. in the world. You know, I see things, you know, here and there, and I'll admire it if it looks good, mm. but I'm out of touch with uh, that whole scene as it, as it exists now. Yeah. You know, um, my memory kind of, my knowledge of it kind of stops in the late 80s as far as... Uh, What's going on? What's going on now? What was your graffiti graffiti name? Um, I don't know. I'm sure I mentioned it in places, but I'll I'll, I'll wait on <laughs> putting it out there now. <laughs> you know, every time I put it out there, it kind of forces me to, to stay retired. You never know. I might get an urge one day to do yeah, something. That's fair. That's fair. And uh, but I probably never will though, because I think there's enough people that know. Yeah. Already. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I do something, so I'm kind of to retire, which is good. I, I prefer it that way. <laughs> Won't get caught. Or They're do doing anything it. stupid now. Yeah, it's not worth it. It's definitely <laughs> not worth important. it. Um, so it went from starting DJing. How did it? How did that turn into making records? Uh, hmm. I mean, yeah, I took it, initially. Yeah, I was an interest in DJing. I loved. You know, I did that. You know, as a teenager, after school, I had my little setup in the basement of my house, yeah. my parents' house growing up. So I'd come home from school and make tapes and mm. give them out in school or whatever. And then, you know, at some point, you know, you want to, if you're going to stick with it and not just have it as a hobby in high school or whatever, you kind of want to need to play somewhere, you know. But 
I tried. There was no one playing place for me to play. That just wasn't happening. So I figured the best way is maybe produce because I started seeing people's names, especially some, you know, like Todd Terry was a big influence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would see that he was playing places um, and had records out. Yeah. And his stuff was amazing. His, his, his stuff, in my opinion, in, in, in that late 80s era was the best yeah. stuff out there. Um, so I was like, well, yeah, I'll try that. I'll try and produce. Maybe. I didn't think I would get any good at it or anything. I was just like, if I can get a record or two out, something good enough, you know, that at least I could do, you know, have that. Maybe that'll get me a gig somewhere. Yeah. And then I'll be done with it, you know? And that was my initial thinking. So I started putting together a little setup just enough, you know, to, to get my ideas out. I bought an MPC 60. Um, and, uh, you know, when I put together uh, uh, enough pieces of gear to start, you know, getting into production, I started to really fall in love with it and want to produce, you know, pursue it deeply and, you know, um, it kind of became, you know, something I was, became passionate about. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't want to just do it to just, oh, look, I got a record out, you know, now book me. I kind of really took it serious and tried to, uh, you know, build up, you know, a skill set or whatever, you know. So was it all hardware to start for you? Were you just, was it just, yeah, yeah there's no sequence, no software sequences? No, I sequenced it initially for, for a couple of years, actually. Uh, you know, all that stuff I did, like, up until, like, 1993 or 4. Yeah. It was all sequenced on the NPC. Mm, wow. I had, uh, I was using, uh, um, I forget, like, like a mini patch bay so yeah. I could get multiple... Um, because the MPC, you had two outputs. You had like an A and B, I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, 16 channels A and B, but, you know, I had a thing that I could split it into more channels, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so much gear, everything all going into the MPC, which was nice because I wasn't looking at a screen. I was looking at the little screen, but it was just like, like a tape deck. It was the play, record buttons, you know, yeah. and I would just get the idea, metronome, click, 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 and then start playing. <laughs> it felt more live, you know. It felt intense. I'd go to other people's studios and I'd see them with the mouse, yeah. moving the mouse and looking at a screen, and it didn't feel musical to me, you know. It's like, I just would count in and just play, and whatever comes out, comes out, you know. That's amazing, though, because it does... It. <sighs> You don't really get that as much nowadays, especially in electronic music. Like yeah. it's, it's just all sequence. It's all on the sixties. It's like it's harder to get a kind of a more organic feel. I tell you, who does do it really well is Mr. G. Um, I don't know if you don't know if you know yeah. much of his stuff, but he, for some reason, it just there's like a groove that he kind of gets across. It just feels like it's all. Why well, I think it is all live. Um, yeah, absolutely. Do you still I mean, you to see guys even back then, you know, they would use the Atari. That was the big sequencer back then. And they would just do their beats, like when they start a track with the mouse, you know, just draw in, there's the kick, oh, draw in, there's the hi-hats. Yeah. You know, and I was just, I couldn't understand that. You know, so I, was, oh, I got lucky that I started the first piece of gear I bought was the Akai MPC-60 mm. in 1987 when it first came out. I bought like the first, the first ones. And learn from it because it had the drum pad. So when I wanted to make a beat, I just click, 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 and then just you just do what pops into your head. You're hitting drum pads, yeah, and you make a beat like you know, yeah, 
with your fingers yeah, <laughs> and hitting yeah, pads yeah. instead of click, 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 or even using a keyboard. It's not the same, you know? You could quantize on those, though, couldn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it would, would kind of shift everything. You could also turn the quantize off, though, if you wanted some weird, weird feeling thing, you know? What was, mm. what was the first release for you? I don't know if I even remember which came first. Might have even been something I didn't put my name on. I, yeah. There was a few pre-records where I just kind of, you know, didn't know if they were any good or not. I just threw them out. <laughs> the classic. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and some of them I even forgot that I did. Yeah. You know, I'm like, that sounds familiar. I think I did that. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's always weird. But like the first ones with my name on it, probably like 1989, like Technical Onslaught, yeah. one of those. And then it was like the Code Six on New Groove, mm. Open Mind on Easy Street. Those are like the first ones that had my name. Yeah. On it, Lost Entity. Were people playing those records then? Yeah, man, I, I would hear them out. Yeah. And those also got me, you know, my first gigs in Europe too. Okay. So would, would would you be playing more in Europe than you would in New York? Would you say you at that time? Yeah, I think initially, yeah. I did like one or two gigs in New York, you mm. know, filling in for somebody. Yeah. Um, and then um, um, it coincided. Like my first gigs in Europe were pre-Energy Flash. Mm. But it coincided with the release of Energy Flash. Yeah. So that kind of came out when I was over there already mm. playing on okay. my first like tour. I spent like two months over there on the first trip. So that would have been like the summer of 1990. Where were you? Where were you? Where in Europe? Uh, Where in Europe? Oh, I, I played uh, on that trip. I think I was in uh, Belgium, Netherlands, the UK. Mm. Um. Maybe Germany on that one. Why? So, why do you think it was? Why do you think it was kind of more Europe-based stuff for you than American-based stuff, or especially New York? Because New York had a huge scene then. Hmm. Well, I mean, when I came back from Europe, then things picked up for me over here too. I started playing the limelight. Yeah, places like that regularly. Um, it was a few places, um, but. I don't know why. I mean, just that is what it is. You were just feeling it more. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I started releasing more over there around that time too. You know, I started focusing my releases more on you know labels that I was digging at the time yeah. uh, from Europe. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. What was what was Lime like? Like, uh, it was cool. It was a uh, it was a uh, <laughs> interesting place to play. It was great. Yeah. What what was what was interesting about it? Uh, well, it was a weird environment, you know, it was a church, I had all the church stuff in there still, but the crowds were, you know, as far as New York goes, it was probably one of the more accepting of the crazy, like you could really push it yeah. behind the wheels, so to speak, there, and the crowds would really appreciate it, Yeah, you know, yeah. some places you couldn't, you know, especially in New York, uh, back then, you know, house, deep house was still king. Mm. And that was fine because I liked that too. But, you know, when you played certain clubs, you couldn't really go out of those parameters yeah. somewhat, you know. Um, the limelight, you could take it wherever you felt like taking it. So, you know. Just 
Yeah. It was I, one of the few places early on that you could do that. Yeah, I, it's the it's the there's certain venues that kind of I hear or you hear about over the years. It's kind of marked history in house and techno and limelight's definitely mm-hmm. one of the ones in America that everyone talks about that kind of masked the way to kind of making it what it is today really yeah um which is pretty amazing that you got to play <laughs> to be fair yeah um let's talk about energy flash how did that come about you know sat down to write a song and <laughs> and you know you know how it is yeah Totally. You sit down and uh, you, you, you make something, you get an idea, and you expand on it. It wasn't like anything that I had in my head initially. It was like three or four songs that I was digging, like that was playing out. Mm. Um, you know, I think Video Crash was definitely no, one of those, like Video Crash, Acid Crash. Yeah. Songs was one of them. And there was a few others um, that I was really feeling. Um, some Kevin Saunders and stuff. Yeah, kind of was going for a vibe that was similar because I would, I would, I would play those those songs out, and uh, you know, I kind of just liked the the the, the mood, mm. you know, that yeah, they would. Yeah. So when I sat down, I was like, I need to come up with something that fits in 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 between these songs, you know, yeah. and I kind of made that, and then it kind of you know, also you, you set out with an idea, but usually the end result is something else anyway. Always. Yeah. It's weird. You always leave room when you're working on to kind of let it just kind of go where it wants to go, you know, it's, in the moment. It's weird how that happens, isn't it? Because you kind of, most of the time you set out to make something and it never comes out how you think it's going to come out. But yeah. usually it comes out better than the initial idea. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which doesn't always happen. But um, but it's nice if it does, definitely for sure. Yeah. Did you did you notice in your career, like when releasing Energy Flash, like it it changed things? Um, did it change things? Um, no, I mean, not, not, I think I think maybe over time it did. I don't think anything initially. You know, it was, I mean, as far as I was concerned, when it came out, it was like a cool track. It was a good track that was a little bit different than what was being out. But, you know, I didn't think anything much of it as far as becoming, you know, um, kind of a a defining piece for a, a, you know, a particular moment or anything like that. You know, it was, I I don't really see anything like that at the time when it came out. It was a track you played and it kind of got the dance floor going. And that was fine, you know? That's interesting because like, I, I, I wasn't around then. I wasn't producing music then, wasn't releasing music. Whereas nowadays, if like Energy Flash is one of the biggest techno records ever let's be honest it's one of the most popular records that everyone kind of knows from back then um if you release something like that nowadays not necessarily if you released energy flash nowadays but if you released a record like energy flash flash where it kind of everyone's playing it um it completely changes careers if you know what i mean um yeah. Do you think that more so gave you longevity in the industry rather than like overnight kind of success? Although no, we- I mean I think I was able to build on it. 
after that, yeah, you know, I had some some records that came out during that time that also, you know, I think Energy Flash though it was something that people kept coming back to because mm-hmm. I had records that were bigger than that even after that at the time, yeah, but also but didn't like kind of transcend the moment, you know, like they were big that year, but then. But Energy Flash was one people kept coming back to. It was like people discovered it every five years. Yeah. Someone would pull it out that they never didn't hear it before, you yeah. know, and just play it. So it was always being reintroduced. It wasn't like this hit song that came out and just stayed popular. It like died down and then like got rediscovered. Yeah. Two years later. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah. That makes and sense then, though. Because it's still. It became popular in, you know, different points you know again yeah you know it's it's interesting because it yeah it still works in clubs now um and people can still play it which a lot of stuff you can't necessarily play um, because it sometimes sounds out of date or there's a lot of songs that are dated to a period they sound great when they come out but then when you listen to them it's like this you can just hear it and it says you know 97 and you know this is what it defines a scene at that time, but it doesn't, where that song doesn't really have anything to kind of, you know, tie it to 1990 or whatever like what, that. What do you think that is? Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like even Mentasm, it was another big one that I, I co-produced. Yeah. Uh, and it was huge at the time. And if, if anything, I think that one made more of a, an impact when it came out, an energy yeah. flash, which was just kind of just snuck in there. People played it, but wasn't like this big thing. It, it was like a slow build over many years of being rediscovered mm. um, by different, you know, generations of DJs where Mentasm blew up immediately. But even now, I mean, I, I hear people playing it out or whatever, but it still dates to that. Mm. 90s because of that Hoover thing, and this was that was the first of that. So it wasn't even like, oh, it's another Hoover because that was the first one. Yeah, and then uh, and then other ones came out, but it's still kind of when you hear it, you say, oh yeah, 1991. Yeah, the exactly. 90s track, you know. Um, but yeah, Energy Flash didn't have anything particularly dating it to to to. Uh, period that makes sense because you do get fashions in in music don't you so you like you said with mentasm the hoover sound it was very popular that it's actually very popular now it's kind of coming back back around right. which is weird um but it it works and see the kids seem to love it um at this very <laughs> time which is it's funny because it's it's interesting how with house and techno like most producers always look back into like what used to be done and how do I make a record how it used to be made or sound um, like a lot of vocals. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot with the like um, certain tracks, you know, like now, like even when I produce, I, I mostly use Logic, yeah. you know, and, and, and some other things, but like I sequence in, in, in Logic. Um. And you have an unlimited now what you could have, you know, gear wise, yeah. you know, with things like logic now. And I hear producers almost trying to go for a 90s, like they're purposely limiting themselves, mm-hmm. you know, like we would have in the 90s when you only had, you know, hardware gear and you had limited how you could use them, 
you know, unless you did overdubs and stuff. But if you just wanted to have everything running live, you know, you were limited. If you had five keyboards, that's it. You had five keyboards and you had to make the best. And a lot of these old gear, there weren't, you know, um, you got one sound out of it. You got one instance, you know, that was it. You weren't going to use it for one thing and then use it for something. You, know, you couldn't. Um, some of these things weren't even like multi-timbral. It was just mono sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you had to be creative in how you used it. Because if you used it for one dedicated purpose, that was it. If it, if it had another cool function, you had to choose which one. So you had to make little sacrifices mm. in your creative which made the songs a little bit more interesting, I think. I think um, I think lim- limitations actually yeah, make yeah. things more creative because you're not just throwing the kitchen sink at it or and just right. hoping something sounds good or something sticks. It, there's something about only having a certain amount of options um, to make something sound good. I think that's really important. Right. And... Um, yeah, so I mean, and like now you have like an unlimited, you know, you can just load up another track and logic mm-hmm. and whatever. But I hear people like it almost sounds like they're, they're they're putting limits on themselves to get that creativity back. Where it's like, so I hear a lot of tracks and and it, it, it sounds like they they're, they're trying to go for a '90s way of producing and not, even though you have unlimited, you know, yeah, at your disposal nowadays. How do you, um, how do you go about it nowadays? Hmm? How do you go about it nowadays? Um, I mean, for a while, you know, in, I'd say the early mid two thousands, when Logic and all these things started coming out and really becoming really capable, you know, I thought it was good because because you have our limit. These are the studios we dreamed of, you know. Yeah. Totally. In the nineties, you know, where you could have this little box that has all your, you know, fold it up, take it and put it in your backpack, take it and finish a track in a hotel while you're on the road. You know, back then, if you were on the road, you weren't really making stuff unless you use someone else's studio. Yeah. But that was no fun. You know, so um yeah, so I was kind of happy to have, oh, this is finally mm. You know, that unlimited amount of tracks and instances. But yeah, that got boring. Yeah. You know, and also I think it made the music a little cheaper almost, you know. Totally, totally. Just kind of, just, you know, I don't know, just throw a million instances, you know. Mm. Sometimes I would look at my tracks and you could see everything, obviously, in Logic Ever Screen. It's like, God, it's like 30 fucking... (laughs) Tracks of drum tracks in ten. This is almost stupid now, you know. Yes, yeah, it's, it's almost the thing is it's almost like that thing of just adding something for the sake of it, and it doesn't need yeah. it. It doesn't. Need you just it. make a new track for it. I got yeah. this one thing that happens once, and but there's a whole track and there's fifty effects on it. Yeah, and it's just like yeah. So there was a time where I was just like I was just not even finishing those tracks, and then mm. I sit down and say, okay, you know. What about now, though? I think now I'll try and, you know, maybe limit myself to like, okay, I'm only putting 20 tracks on here. Let's make it all work somehow. And I'm not going to go, even though it's easily to be tempted to like just keep adding, but don't. Because if you're doing that, then I think you kind of, maybe the idea isn't so good if you have to, if it takes a hundred tracks. 
I think that's the thing. I think that's that you've hit the nail on the head, isn't it? Because you could have you ha- pinned, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got reverb on everything. <laughs> it's you it's, it's, it's almost find your idea a little bit. It's almost like the the least amount of record, the least amount of tracks. If you if you can have yeah. a really solid groove, a great melody, great vocal, exactly. or something like that, it's, it it always is the best records, always. Yeah. And you just... I mean, one thing with these, uh, with doing things with, with, with like Logic or even Ableton or whatever, it, it, it takes the mystery. I, I remember, you know, in the 90s when everyone had, you know, hardware studios, um, you would listen to a record and you would be like marvel on how they did something. You would hear a trick or a thing or something. And be like, how did they do that? How did they accomplish that? Now you listen and everything is like, yeah, that's this effect, that's that reverb. That's So it takes a lot of the mystery out of the music because I can recognize almost every plugin now, every synth, every, mm. you know, plugin, you know, and it just, it kills the magic a little bit when I want to listen to music and enjoy it, but yeah. like my brain is already dissecting and I'm like, oh, I hear, I, I want to be wowed. I want to hear something and just be like, I have no idea how to that's that's one of the reasons why I actually don't like going to nightclubs because I spend my whole night trying to work out how those records are made. Um, it, yeah, it really does take the fun out of it for me because it's, it gives, especially when you know when you when you when you immediately can hear oh that's that so because a lot of these plugins are so distinctive yeah that you just recognize them you recognize even the little glitchy things uh, you start to know how they're mangling this and how they're doing that. Mm. And you know how easy it is too, when you're doing it. So it's like, it sounds really crazy when I'll, like, I'll be listening to music with somebody and I'll be like, you'd be surprised at how easy this is. This one plugin, you could, if you never made a record before, you could be doing something exactly like that in two seconds. Yeah. Yeah. This plugin is, I'll tell them exactly what to get. <laughs> Sometimes they'll get it and then they'll be like, yeah, you're right. I was using this and, I think yeah. it's, I think it's interesting though now how it's so readily available for people to write music, which means that you do get a lot more creativity. You, it means you also get a lot more shit that gets released. Yeah, everybody has access to a studio, and within a few months can become a pretty competent producer. Yeah, when when. No, training, no nothing. <laughs> when did yeah exactly? When did it for you? When did it become cool to be a DJ? Like, when was it the cool thing? Because it never was. I went home and I unboxed my first set of turntables. <laughs> so, I don't know, 1984. <laughs> I was like, I'm a DJ now. I'm looking at um, my Gemini mixer, or I think it was a pyramid mixer. Damn. One of those, yeah. you know, uh, that, two turntables. I got two crates of records right here. Mm. I'm a DJ. This is the coolest fucking thing ever. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait. I thought I was like, Amazing. As soon as I figured out the beat match, you know, I was like, this is great. So I'm making tapes. Yeah, that's my tape. I love that. Well, I went to school. I'm a DJ. Did anyone else think it was cool, though? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I thought it was. I was, you know, I couldn't wait to go home Yeah. from school. I would just think about that shit all day. Think about what records I'm going to buy that weekend. It's mad how you can get that, how how when you're a kid, you can kind of, or as, as well as an adult, but I think it's more so when you're younger, how you can get transfixed into one thing. And mm-hmm. it can literally just, you find that one thing as a kid, which not all kids find, um, but you find that one thing and you're just, 
in it for life. There's literally no going back. No, mm-hmm. no matter how, like, when did it become like a full time thing for you? Uh, let's see. I, I, I didn't finish college. Um, kind of left to my first year because um, I was getting gigs to go to Europe. Yeah. And I couldn't because I was in school, but the offers kept coming. They were bigger and bigger. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll leave, go to Europe. I could always, you know, I didn't know it was going to go on forever. So I was like, I'll do this for, fitting for you know, going like a tour, two tours this year, then go back to school next year. Mm. And then I'll have that experience, you know? So I did that. But they just kept coming, and I never did go back to school, and I just kept touring until I would come home, you know, spend a few weeks at home making some records, mm. you know, some new releases uh, to, to keep the thing going, and yeah. go back on the road, and I'd spend, you know, months out of the year on the road, and it's just happened, you know. I love that. Forever almost, you know. Uh, you know, um, yeah, all through the nineties, you know, most of the early two thousands, and then then I was, you know, I finally, you know, after two decades or whatever, I was able to slow down and yeah, not have to do much of anything, <laughs> you know. When when was there ever a point in your career where you were like, okay, I I love doing this, I love music, I love my life, but I need something else to kind of fulfill my life. Um. I mean, yeah, you always try and, I mean, almost from the beginning, I would kind of, you know, I'd go on the road, I'd play and DJing and, and producing and, and just music, dance music was, yeah. you know, it became a job at that point, you know, because, yeah. you know, I had to make the next flight. I had to, you know, there was always a schedule to be had. So when I was home, you know, I needed to pull myself out of that a little bit, pull out of pull out of that world a little bit and kind of get grounded in other things just to keep life interesting. Because yeah. even though it was my dream as a kid to make music and DJ and travel the world, um, when it's happening and you're doing it for you start to see, you know, it's it, 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 that it's work and um not fun all the times, you know, I mean, the gigs are always fun, but all the lead up to it, you know, especially back then touring in the nineties, you didn't have computers or cell phones. Yeah. So when you went on, you know, when I would go to the airport and leave the country, you know, I was it, I was out of communication with the home world, you know, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and life, you know, so you lived on the road and you were on the road and you kind of out of touch with everybody. Mm. Um, what what were they? It was say? more of a lonelier experience, you know. Now yeah, you have your phone, you have your computer, you're always connected. But that didn't become, you know, till you know, two thousand something or whatever, yeah. you know. But for that first decade of me doing doing it, it wasn't like that. It was just, mm. you know. Well, so when you come home, you kind of, you know. And sometimes I'd have a month or two to myself where I didn't have to travel and. I didn't want anything to do with music for a little while, you know. I did like kind of, you know, fall in love with it again to get back on the road, you know. What What were those? What did you used to do to kind of like just take time out? What What were those? Did you like make any? Did you do any other hobbies? Have family? Like what What was it? Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, I don't know. I had a lot of different interests in the 90s that kind of um, um, took me, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know. You just kind of just get lost in whatever. You have your moments of, all right, I'm, in, I'm into this now. It's my hobby. Right. I'm into this. Or, you know, to go out, to just go to rock concerts and stuff. You know, I was always, you know, privately into like heavy metal music okay. and stuff. So I was always, you know, sometimes I would go out and I would see, you know, other bands I was into, yeah. whatever, you know, and just, and not, nothing with DJing, you know, mm. just kind of, you know. That's cool though. That's cool. Cause I, I, I can totally relate to that, especially after like the pandemic as well. Um, like, I don't know about you, but during, during the pandemic, I wrote so much fucking music um oh, and I, yeah, I don't have curtains no worries man it's fine i'm trying now got a good glow on you it's fine yeah um yeah and for me it was like i kind of like burnt myself out writing music and even up to now i still really haven't written much music um and i'm kind of slowly trying to get back into it but there does come a point when you 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 lose the love of music when it's all you've been doing for a certain amount of time um it is super important to just kind of have have a break and and get out of it um how what do you do nowadays like with regards to touring do you do you just chunk out a load of time to tour or I mean, is it well, like the pandemic kind of slow things down anyway yeah. and you know, I did start a family in the early 2000s, and you know, my daughter was born. Yeah, and I was married. Mm. Had a house in the country. Yeah, <laughs> so living that life. So I slowed down on the road. I was able to, you know, nice. kind of put myself into a, a semi-retirement somewhat. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think any DJs ever envision themselves retiring from this. You're always in the semi-retirement because even when you're done. There's always a gig you'll do. Yeah. Ooh, oh, that sounds like fun. I'm going to come out. I'm going to play that. But, you know, I'm not full-time going to go on the road yeah. for months or whatever, you know, because we all enjoy this. So there'll always be something you'll do. But how heavy are you going to do it, you know? Mm. So, you know, that probably started, I don't know, in 2010s or whatever, yeah. you know? That's cool. Um, and so I spent a lot of time home and not producing as much, you know, for fun, but not really like, oh, I got to get the next release done. I got to yeah. get the. So there was a big gap in slowing down because I'd spent two decades where I was like a machine, yeah. like a maniac, just on the road, touring, putting out releases, just, you know. And so after 20 plus years of that, just take it easy, slow down. Um, but then, you know, a, a number of things happened. After that, I got divorced. <laughs> and the pandemic hit. Um, so, you know, you spend enough time, in, you know, just, you know, in that semi-retirement mode, especially when the pandemic hit and you couldn't tour anymore. Yeah. You know, then I was like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Maybe I should Stop want to do this now, you know. Now, I'm also my daughter, she's 18 now. Okay. And she didn't really get to experience me at my, you know, now she's at the age where she might, you know, 
be interested in going to clubs. And, yeah, totally. You know, maybe not clubs, but festivals or whatever. I don't know. So I'm thinking it might be cool to kind of get back to come it. out a little bit and go back and play and do all this stuff again, like you know, to that extent that I used to. I love that yeah. because I I think that you're seeing it more and more with obviously DJs that have kids. Um, I, I in fact when we met at um, Crossfest, um, yeah. MK had his daughter there, um, and it was the first time she'd been to like a show of his. It's kind of the first time she kind of really knew what right. her dad did as as a living, um, and it was it's kind of amazing because it's so nice to see it kind of become like a family thing because it's very, it's very much a single person's lifestyle, the whole, the whole DJ thing. Um, And when families are created in that scene and it kind of goes on and there's, there's God knows there's so many DJs, daughters and sons that are kind of getting into the industry and starting to DJ as well, which is, is kind of nice to see because it's only, it's not been around long enough for generations of it to, to become, to become like a generational thing. Right. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to see that. I think it's super important as well because it's like, like I said, it's when, like you said, you're traveling by yourself all the time. Yeah. Um, no one really gets to experience that with you that, that really matters to you. If you know what I mean, that's really that close as yeah. a family or like wives and, but no one really gets to experience that unless they come on tour with you. Um, yeah. But then they see that it's not fun all the time yeah. and it's a schedule so you don't get to just it's not you're not you're not on vacation exactly. with a couple of gigs in between it's it's a work schedule sometimes you got to get up you play you know you finish at 5 a.m then you don't you want to sleep but you don't get to sleep because you got a 7 a.m flight so you go you get your shit together and you get on a plane and it's it's a whole and that's not fun for the other person no. so that makes them think yeah i'm not gonna go on tour with you the next <laughs> Go and have fun. Uh, I need a vacation from being on tour with Literally, you. Literally, yeah. That kind of sucked, except for the gigs were cool. But I never got so little sleep in my life it is, during that time. So good luck with the rest of your trips. It is like that. And it's like, it's it's funny when you kind of meet meet girls or guys, whatever you're into, and... Mm-hmm. and they're like oh, i want to come on tour with you and i was like you, you absolutely don't want to come on tour with me you're gonna hate every yeah. minute of it it's like you come come for a weekend and it will absolutely destroy your weekend and you'll want to walk off um but it is nice to be able to experience that with with close ones um i remember i took my dad on tour for a weekend he absolutely loved it and it, it was like just nice to show him what you get up to if you know what i mean and in kind of mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. a great great experience definitely i love it yeah i mean I, I you know the thing is when you when you're not doing it and you're like okay i did enough of it now i'm gonna live my life mm. raise a family whatever um you start to miss it yeah. even the little shit that you always hated about it so you know then coming out of the pandemic everything just sort of kind of made me miss it yeah. so um you know i'm starting to gear up for um <laughs> coming you know, back Going back, yeah, producing. I just built a new studio, you know. Yeah, um, you know, me and my girlfriend have a place together now. Nice, she also didn't get to see experience that part. So now I kind of want to show, you know, my daughter wants to see, you know, I want to kind of see what I 
do and and also you know this excites me man this excites me yeah. to hear that jerry well, put a new studio together i'm starting to produce you know again and you know take it seriously again amazing um, and uh gear up for the road again yeah in the yeah. like in the time off that you, when you were like okay it's not going to be my priority um right. what were you, were you do did you have to do anything work-wise or were you just no, i was just chilling? you know enjoying nice um, <laughs> but that's that's so that's so amazing right a lazy simple life that's that's amazing that you could, productive. that's uh, amazing that you could do that though because I think there's there's something saying about that is that if you're careful with your money and you look after everything, you can have a nice life and you can just keep going. Yeah, I don't know how careful I was or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but whatever, you can, you know, I'm I'm a simple man, so yeah, I don't I don't I don't you know I don't need much. Yeah, which is which is also a good thing. Um, yeah if you want to keep going so is the plan to start releasing more music yeah at least making music you know you know i never really like make stuff to kind of like you know I, you know to make movies kind of just like create and then you see the right track for the right you know where it belongs you know um you know I don't know. You make the tracks, you believe in what you, you know, you find the ones that are the gems. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. In the pile. And then you kind of, you know, yeah, things just kind of will happen, you know, as they're supposed to. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Do you try to calculate things too much? Do you have a manager or anything or do you literally just do it all yourself? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm kind of building back up to, uh, you know, being careful in my choices of, yeah, okay. you know, who you work with. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I, I just, this wasn't my plan wasn't to kind of, you know, but you know, I, I, I love this shit. So, yeah. and also it was more of, you know, the pandemic. It's one thing when I decide I'm going to stay home and, 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 and not do so much of that yeah. in my life. Now my life is more about this now and yeah. not so much about that. Um, that's my choice. But when the pandemic came, it was like, now you can't go. Because mm-hmm. even I did, like I said, you're always in a semi-retirement because there's always a gig you're going to want to do or something yeah. you're going to want to take. Just just to break up, it doesn't mean I need to be on a, a full-time touring schedule, but it's nice to look at your calendar even far out and say, oh yeah, you know, that thing, you know, uh, six weeks from now, I do have that thing. Yeah. I'm going to play and, and, you know, it's going to feel good to come out and play uh, a show, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and so you're always going to be doing something, but the pandemic even wiped those things out, you know, mm-hmm. and then you had to stay home yeah. and we didn't know how long that was going to last for. And then that kind of, that's what really made me want to start doing it again, because yeah. when you're told you can't do it, you start kind of now you want to, maybe I will go back on the road. <laughs> maybe I fucking do it to all one more or two more, you know, or yeah. whatever, you know, now I can't, you know, so when that all ended and everyone was able to go back and, then I'm looking at Instagram and it seems exciting again. It's like, you want to be part of it now all of a sudden because you weren't part of it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, now I want to fucking, yeah, I want to do this. You know? There is something about being told that you can't do something. And then yeah, it, 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 it was more of that than anything else that kind of snapped me back. Yeah. 
you know, put this back on my, you know, focus. But it's also in your in your blood if you've been doing it so long since you know, whatever. You, that's why I'm saying even when like most, I don't know, every DJ I know, you never really retired. You're, you're always, it's always, you're always somewhat connected. Well, I also, I don't know about you, but for me, is like, what the fuck else am I gonna do? When you dedicate your life so much to one thing, it's like, I don't know what the fuck to do after anyway. So it's, yeah. so it's almost like you kind of have to just keep doing it because I mean, love family it. was easy because you know when you have you know young kids at home, mm. you know it's easy to kind of make your life about that. Yeah. You know, but when they grow up, then it's like they don't need you so much anymore. <laughs> You know, and it's like, well, now I'm back to fucking, what do I do now? You know? Yeah. Definitely. And especially yeah, if they want to see, you know, they got to go on YouTube to see what you did before they, you know, in your life before all that. It's well, like, hey, I would have liked to have seen that. It's like, all right, well, maybe I should go back to doing that. Yeah. When was the first time your daughter was like, oh, damn, dad, you were like, you're like a famous DJ. <sighs> Can you no, remember? I, I think, I think I, I, she found stuff on YouTube. Or, yeah. Somewhere, and I didn't even know. Wow. You know, um, and then, yeah. I mean, she knew, I, you know, it was yeah. always a, like a, a set up, a studio. Yeah. I got fucking tens of thousands of records in the house. So there's a clue there, you know, but, you know, I don't know if she saw the, the end result on the other way until she saw, you know, videos or whatever yeah do you do you still play play vinyl when you play live or are you strictly USB? no i mean i would but it's um you know fucks your back up <laughs> yeah and i care about my records now too much yeah. you know because they're not easily replaced you know in the 90s uh, you know i might have been a little more reckless with the things that you know yeah. records i would take on the road um but now i my records are you know i don't even want to play them like looking at them and you know yeah. collecting them i'll play them but very careful because they can't they can't really be replaced anymore these days yeah that's cool do you still no, buy do you, I, I, I love collecting even more now than, than, yeah. than i ever did i was gonna say do you still buy i do i mean i have almost everything i want mm. record wise yeah so it's hard for me to like i'll still hunt but i don't really find things anymore everything i really would have hunted for You've got or have enjoyment of even like you know certain valuable records I already have, yeah, which kind of sucks because there's really no holes in the collection, yeah, that need to be filled. I mean, there's things I don't have, but I, I don't really want them, so yeah, yeah, like everything I really want, like when you would go and you would hunt and you would hope that you find, like, oh, great, if there was a copy of this mm. sitting there, I kind of have all those already. That's amazing, though. Well, I can't think of anything. If I find a record, usually I'll buy a, a double, something I already have, but if it's a little nicer yeah. than the one I have. But I also have those. Sometimes there's some records that I cherish. You know, I will, you know, hunt, you know, those records, and I have like four copies of them because I was always buying a better copy wow. if I came across it. Yeah. And now I have four of those or five of those. I, I, but I can't really even buy much of those anymore. Yeah, that's a pretty amazing. Your collection must be insane. I mean, to me it is because it's the, the collection I always dreamed of having. But to someone else, um, like I recently, you know, there's another collector who's into different, yeah, you know, also dance music or whatever. But 
he has different things and special little whatever. And he didn't really think much of my stuff because <laughs> my cherish, like this is a holy grail to me, yeah. was shit to him. Yeah. And his thing, vice versa. He was showing me records. Oh, there's only 200 of these made. And, yeah. But they were like new records. And I listened to it. And <laughs> I saw one for $2. I probably wouldn't buy it. Yeah. Maybe I would now because you're telling me it's fucking a holy grail to somebody. And yeah. So I might buy it just for that. Just to have it. You know, to trade down the line or something. But, you know, so I guess your dream collection is all, you know, um, kind of. You know, it's more uh, personal. Yeah. It's very personal. It's personal, exactly. So for me, I have my, you know, what what fourteen year old Joey Belcher would have only dreamed that he would own one day. Yeah. As far as records, fourteen year old Joey is really fucking happy with his <laughs> collection. But the next guy might be like, yeah, I see, you know, tens of thousands of shit. Yeah. I love that though. That's that's important. It's personable, and and as yeah. long as you're happy. So to me, I got the ultimate record collection, personally. Yeah, but I don't I, think it, anyone, you know, it's a, a, a universal thing is going to come and look at my records and have the same interpretation. I've only I've only just recently bought uh, turntables again. I haven't had turntables for maybe ten years. Um, and at my place in Detroit, I have like a whole setup and now I'm going to start collecting records again. Cause I, I stopped buying records completely. Um, you still have the records though? You still have the ones? I have, yeah, I have my old ones. I never got rid of them, but I, I was never, I, when I first started playing, it was during the vinyl times, but it then quickly, very quickly moved to cdjs so i only started djing in the early 2000s um which and then it switched to turntables and i was like i was i was living in ibiza when it switched to turntables it's when it switched to cdjs so i was like fuck carrying vinyl every everywhere um and then started playing cds so I I stopped buying records very quickly because for me it was for me I'd much prefer to listen to like a rock record or like mm-hmm. some like a proper record not just like a single on on turntables. Um, it's, but now I've got my own setup. For me, it's going to be it's time to start collecting again. Um, especially living in Detroit when I'm back in in the states. There's some great record stores. I mean, it's fun. Yeah. You know, when I would go on the road in the 90s, that's how I would occupy a lot of my, um, time. you know, time alone, you know, just trying to kill time, yeah. you know, was going to all the record stores, a lot of, and, and it was for a record collector, it's the best job you can have because you're in a different city yeah. and you get access to dig through, you know, all the best record stores around the world, yeah. you know, whereas, you know, other collectors that just kind of have their day jobs and collect uh, kind of locked into their city or nearby cities, but can't just get on a plane and go to, you know, multiple cities on different continents, you know, yeah. and dig through the gems. And that's what helped me build a lot of my collection. Sometimes I would, cause I didn't want to travel. I would bring a box or two on the road with me to DJ in the nineties and play vinyl. Yeah. But 
you know, if I'm buying records, you know, even 10 or 20 records in each city and I'm doing a multi-city tour, you know, you'd have to mail them. So I'd mail them back to myself. Back oh, then, wow. two postage was a lot cheaper than it is now. Yeah. But I would always mail the records back home, you know, um, and just buy, you know, rather than carry another second yeah, big box of records around from city to city of records I'm not going to even play out. Yeah. That's you know? what's What's your, like... What's your holy grail of record? If you were to like pick pick one, what would it be like? I mean, that I own. They're not even necessarily the most valuable, but they, to me, they are. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. Uh, they weren't easy to get, but yeah. if you found them, you know, you could yeah. probably find a good copy for a hundred bucks, hundred fifty yeah. bucks. But you know, these were records that I couldn't find that were out when I was a kid in high school. Yeah, you know, records like Live Convention '82. Okay. Um, uh, which is a, a, a live hip hop album mm. of like, you know, um, I think that's got uh, Grand Wizard Theodore Damn. Uh, spinning. Mm. And there's like, you know, the Cold Crush Brothers and Busy B, whatever. They're all like passing the mic. It was one of those live hip hop jams. Yeah. You know, that somebody made a cassette and then somebody actually made a record of it, a vinyl record. And so many samples came out of that record, you know, uh, that you hear. Have you sampled it? No, I didn't sample it, but it's in so many, like, just Classic. pop codes. Like, you could hear, you know, like a point to a dozen things on that record that are like, oh, this guy sampled this from this record, this one sampled. And I wanted one when I was like, you know, when I first knew it even existed, when yeah. I was like 14, 15. And you just could not find it, you know? And then I found one and I got a mint one that's like barely ever been played, you know? And yeah, so things like that mean a lot to me, but I have seen them go for, you know, as little as a hundred bucks at times when they turn up. So it's not like, you know, it was just the fact that when I, there was a time when I really wanted one really bad and couldn't ever find one. Yeah. And then I finally did, you know? So things like that record mean a lot to me i love that I love um that. Uh, another one that was like that that was so hard to find that i wanted so much when i was a kid in high school was um like the lessons uh it was called uh, it was on tommy boy but it was never released it was only as released as a promo okay uh it was uh double d and double d and steinsky the lessons one two and three i don't and, know uh, that one. i don't know that one yeah, it was. It, it came out in 1985 on Tommy Boy, but it was never released. It was yeah. just a, so it's just a promo label only. It was right. a giveaway. Yeah, yeah. Because they couldn't get the samples cleared. I assume it was. Uh, it, it, it was. It was basically a a reel to reel cut up mix mm. of a bunch of records. So I guess it was back in '85. It was impossible to get clearance on all that stuff. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. So they just gave it away as a as a giveaway. Yeah. I had friends that I went to high school with that had copies of that record. And I would go to their house and look through the record and they would have it. And I would always offer them like, oh, sell that to me. And they would, no, no. <laughs> so I really wanted one bad. And then I got one. Now I have like five copies. How did you get it? The first time I got it, uh, I found it in a record store mm. in Flushing, in Queens, uh, around 1989. And uh, wow. I paid 10 bucks for it. So you've had it for a while. Or had, had it for a while. Yeah. Uh, mine copy wasn't worn. It was in nice condition. It was, it was nice, but then, um, I don't know. Maybe in the nineties, I found someone selling a mint, unplayed yeah. one, and uh, yeah, I think I paid like a hundred bucks for it. But I lost my mind that I had one mint. 
never played. You know, is it still unplayed? Yeah, I think I played it once. You know, <laughs> and then but it back. It's, it's still, and I, you know. But again, that's you know, you could find that record now. You go on Discogs and yeah. this on there for like 150 bucks. It's not not an untouchable. Now with Discogs, you can find every record anyway. Do you do you use Discogs at but all? It meant a lot to me because I remember as a kid hunting for that record yeah. and also seeing other people have it. You know, maybe you know. Well, there's so, there's something about that that I feel like the only way today is similar to that is when a a DJ producer plays a record that no one else has and it's their record. And yeah, I have a lot of those from, from DJing in the nineties, ones that I would play, you know, songs because people would give me stuff and I have people, you know, tell me that, you know, they tried to find it and it's the hardest record to find. I was like, yeah, somebody just walked up and gave it to me before it was even, you know, but I don't really have any, like, that's to me, it's not a prized possession record. I've given some of those records away. It's like, yeah, I played it. Yeah. You're telling me it's, it's only a hundred made and it's your holy grail. Just, yeah, here you go. Take it. I'm done with it. Sure. It doesn't yeah. mean, I don't, I don't care about the monetary value of a record. You know, mm. it's, it's, it's music. So totally. it's what it means to me. It's not the, the cost. Oh, this record is hard to find. And it's, it's a thousand dollar record, mm. you know, like, I don't give a shit about that, you know? It's yeah. a the piece of music, what what it is as a personal thing, you know? So that's what I'm saying. Like, my most valuable prized possession records aren't really expensive records. Yeah. They're just records that I really wanted and couldn't find because they weren't available. And it's, it's I think it's also, for me, is also finding something that r- reminds you of a time of your life that was that's very important um, and, and how those records kind of masked your life at that time. Uh, we've all got we've all got songs we've got records that were like this was the best time of my fucking childhood like i i remember trying to find this record i remember listening to this record like it it is very personable it's not about i don't think it's ever about finances realistically until you start making money wanting to make money out of collecting but i yeah. I, I don't know many collectors that give a fuck about cost no i mean yeah i, I Maybe if you, you know, some collectors, they, they collect records that are valuable because they're saving up to get another record. That's, that's got a crazy monetary yeah. that they can't afford unless they, you know, got to move things around in their collection or whatever. You know, I didn't really worry about that. It, again, it was just a matter of what I could find. And it used to be like that. When I think back, there was a time when I was really into collecting gear Yeah, in the early 90s, uh, modular synths and stuff like that that I couldn't find Yeah, that I really, I don't know. And it was more because I remember it was certain things I got eventually and I integrated them into my studio and I was yeah. so psyched and I barely used them because they never really came up. Like yeah, I had a, 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 a Roland system 100 M. Wow. Finally, after trying to find it, and the first time I ever saw one was when I, first time I visited RNS, yeah. RNS records and I was in their studio and they had one. Mm. And I wanted it so bad. And I spent like two years trying to find one. I finally found one, put it in my studio, paid a fortune for it at the time. I can't point to a single record in my that I ever used it on. I don't ever remember really using it except for playing with it in the studio. I love that. I think it was cool. It made a lot of cool sounds. But when it came down to like, all right, I'm going to make something you know, it never came up. I would never, it was never like, oh, that's, I need that in this yeah. track. You yeah, know? yeah. 
And there's a few pieces of gear. I also had a Waldorf wave, oh, wow. not the microwave, but the, the wave, the big one with the yeah. flip up top, you know, I paid like 25 grand for that thing. Jesus. And I actually sold it to, well, I sold it to a broker who sold it to uh, Jodeci. Oh, no RB. way. But it, so they have my wave, wow. from what I'm told. I, I don't know. He could watch this. But I was told from the broker that sold it that that's who got it. Did you, make, did you make good money from it? Uh, yeah, I think I broke even. Yeah. On it. I, mean, I think I made a little bit uh, on it. But, uh, you know, I, I had that. And that was probably, as far as during my gear collection goes, mm. was the, the thing in my yeah. centerpiece of the collection, the, the holy grail in my, like the thing I, I showed off the most when I, people would come to my studio back then. Uh, I can't point to a single record <laughs> that I've ever used it on also. That's amazing. 25 and then there's grand. things that I, I can say I use, you know, I had like a, a, a dozen records I, I could point to that I used my DX100 on, for mm. instance, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, ballpark and things like that. And the DX 100s all over it. And that's like a hundred dollar keyboard. You can buy one right now. Well, I don't know about now. Now everything's vintage and collectible. But at the time that was like a hundred dollars in any used store and there was yeah. no shortage of them. And I used, that was, I used it in so many tracks. Uh, and also to, uh, I remember I used the Nord lead one, the first Nord lead a lot on a lot of the early. Yeah. Um, was that before it was red? Used a lot of a lot of a lot of percussive noises and yeah. stuff, but uh, there's dozens of tracks I could point to where I used that. Exactly. These weren't expensive gear, but also sitting right next to those was an off twenty six hundred, a rolling system modular, Do you still have them? whatever. Do you still have them? Wave, and I, I can't think of a single thing that I used those on. But all the cheap fucking tinkery little fucking cheesy pieces of gear. They're all over my tracks. Do you still the, do you still uh, have so do you still have a lot of the gear? I have some, but not a lot. Yeah. You know, after a while. There was just one day I just lost interest in collecting gear, but especially since I was buying like collectible gear and just yeah. collecting them. Apparently I thought I was gonna use them. I liked having this amazing studio, yeah. but I realized I'm not using any of this yeah. stuff. You know, I'm buying it, and I'm because I, I'm, a, I'm I'm collecting it, and I was like, this is kind of stupid. Yeah. You know, I just one day I just kind of it was just a switch that went off and says I don't really want to do this anymore. Yeah. It was probably around the time like Logic and stuff came out, and I realized I didn't need to, and I'm just buying stuff and collecting it, and it's not what it's about. It's not in the spirit of music making. You know, yeah. I, I, I like to make music. I want to, but I don't know. Love that. I love that. Dude, we've just I let a lot of that stuff go. Yeah, that's cool though. That's oh, cool. most of it I just gave away anyway to people that were really other people that were looking, you know, for that stuff and you know um, could never get it any other way. Yeah, I love you that. lucky day. That's amazing. That's amazing, dude. We've just done an hour and ten minutes. Um, okay, let's let's wrap this up. Um, I feel <laughs> like we could talk all day. Um, but that was that was amazing. Um, before we go, is there any? How do people follow you on social media and all that? Uh, Instagram is my my name. I just kind of just joined Instagram this year, cool. the beginning that. of this year, and then I haven't really even posted in months. I, I'm <laughs> not big on 
on that stuff media. either. Well, it must be very different, right? Months. It must be Since very. It must. must it must be very different from back in the from back how it used to be. With, with yeah, Paul. yeah. I like just kind of putting out music and not having to like pump it up, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know. And also, you know, the gigs. I like just, you know, I don't know. Okay. I mean, social media is cool, you know. Some, you know, I'll go in, uh, but I really like digging up content and stuff. It's just not fun. Yeah, I mean, totally. Uh, I feel you, man. I feel you. <laughs> it uh, bores me. Thanks so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. It's, it's been an absolute honor to speak to you, um, and hopefully get to catch up with you when I'm in New York next. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, let's do it, man. Keep safe. Yeah, sure. See you soon. Bye, man. Yeah, buddy. Thanks. thanks. Bye. And that's a wrap cannot believe that just happened um it was amazing great conversation share it with your friends share it with whoever you feel is gonna like it hope you enjoyed it keep safe see you next time hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.